0: Well, let's open the Word of God again. We read this passage earlier and I ask you to turn now to Hebrews chapter 2. Hebrews chapter 2, if you'd like to turn there in your Bibles and if you are our guests with us or first time you've been with us in a while, we are entering into the early weeks of a journey taking us through this great letter that the Lord has given us in His Word, the letter of Hebrews and asking the Lord to open it to our hearts as we I gather and worship on Sunday morning. So we open there again. And it's a joy as we've welcomed our guests to also welcome uh, those new members. It was a blessing to have these five today uh, to join with us. But also I was thinking as I noticed the names of the five that uh, became uh, new members today, I recognized that all five of them were people I'd had the privilege of baptizing. I thought that was a special morning. Uh, Laura... uh, Baptized her in December of 1987. She was one of the early converts uh, under uh, ministry here. And her husband, Les, in December of 1995. And what a blessing uh, it's been to partner with them in ministry over the years. And then the Grace family uh, last year for Jennifer and Sean Jr. to have the privilege of baptizing them. And then last Sunday as uh, Sean was baptized... Uh, incredible, incredible uh, privilege. You know, for each Christian, uh, and for every Christian who follows the Lord in baptism, it's through baptism that we identify with Him. His death, His burial, and His resurrection. And sometimes identifying with Christ can be very, very costly, can't it? As I was thinking about these five that are new members, and I had privilege of baptizing them, and over the years, the The many, many hundreds of people who've been baptized here. I remember some, their baptisms were very, very costly to them in human relationships. I was thinking last night of uh, one dear man, a young father at that time with a young family, and he was told by his father, if you are baptized, I am going to disown you. I'm going to write you from the will. You will be dead to me. And uh, what an honor it was to stand with that man as he declared his faith in Christ and was baptized. And yes, his father uh, fulfilled that threat, disowned him, and had nothing to do with him from that day forward. But that dear brother identified himself uh, with the family of God and with his brother, the Lord Jesus Christ, with his Heavenly Father. And what an honor that is. And we're honored by people who identify at great sacrifice. And I hope we understand that around the world, there are people who literally, to identify with Christ, they put themselves at great risk, and it costs them greatly. But here's something we need to understand about our identifying with Christ the Lord. We can only identify with the Lord because the Lord has identified with us, right? He has identified with us and Jesus identifies himself with us as his people and it cost him dearly. The Bible tells us an interesting thing about the ministry of Jesus, that there was a time with when identifying himself with his people, his disciples, and teaching them and doing the Father's will, actually cost him relationship with his family. We're told that his brothers and sisters, yes, Jesus had brothers and sisters. They thought he had lost his mind and they came to take him home. And he was told, you're your, your family outside wants you. And he understood what they meant. And he pointed at the crowd around him. And he said, who is my mother, my brother, my sister? This is my family. Jesus identified himself with his disciples. And it cost him even family relationships for a season. It cost him his life on the cross. For Jesus to do what he did, he did for us, his family, it cost him his life. As a matter of fact, for a few terrible hours, Jesus to identify with us cost him what was the most precious to him of all things, and that was his relationship with his Father. To identify with you and me meant on the cross, he literally, in a sense, became you and me and Bearing our sin. And he was separated from God because of our sin. And he became the sacrifice for our sins. And he cried out. You remember, my God, my God. Why have you forsaken me? Jesus identifying with us. Cost him greatly. And Jesus in his entire life both in His birth, His life on earth, His death, and now His life in heaven. Jesus has one great mission, and that is to identify with us as His people. He truly is a brother like no (laughs) other. And that's what I want us to think about this morning, as we're thinking about that Jesus is so much better, and we should not settle for anything less We need to hear what the writer of Hebrews was saying to the Christians in that day and today is saying the same to us this very hour, that Jesus has so identified with us, we are his brothers and sisters and he is a brother like no other, like no other. Now notice what Jesus as our brother did for us in his mission for us. We've noted these as we read this morning, but I want to draw your attention to these three things that our brother has done for us and is doing for us. And the first thing I want you to see is that our brother, the Lord Jesus, he is our brother who rescues us. He's our brother who rescues us. Jesus' mission was a rescue mission. It was a rescue mission for his family. And he calls His people, His family. Look at verse 10. This is from last week as we are making our journey. But look at verse 10 in your Bibles. It says this. For it was fitting that He, that is God the Father, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation, that's Jesus, should make Him perfect through suffering. For he who sanctifies, that's Jesus, and those who are sanctified, that's us, all have one source. The source is God the Father. So here's the result. That is why he, Jesus, is not ashamed to call them, that's us, brothers. Now that's precious, isn't it? He is not ashamed to call us His brothers. That's how closely Jesus identifies with His people. We are His servants. We recognize that, but we're not just servants. We are His disciples, but we're not just disciples. We are His followers, but we're not just followers. We're His friends, He calls us. But we're not just friends. He actually says we're family. We are family. And the Lord's salvation plan, you could say, is the family plan. It's the family plan because Jesus came on this family rescue mission to rescue God's people. By His birth and by His death, He came to identify with us. Now, if you look at verse 14, Jesus completely identifies Himself with us by His birth. He was the eternal Son. He is the Creator. He's the heir. He's the ruler of all things. But He's so identified with us that He came and was born. Verse 14, look at what the Word says. Since therefore the children, that is us, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, He Himself likewise partook of the same things. Jesus, in order to rescue us as the Son of God, had to become like us. And not just become like us, He had to become one of us. In order to be our Redeemer... He had to become a relative redeemer, a kinsman redeemer, as we would say. He had to become like us, and He had to become one of us. He identified with us in His birth. But then notice, He identified with us in His death. In His death. By His death, Jesus provided our complete rescue. Now, how did Jesus rescue us? What what was this rescue? Notice, first of all, He rescued us by disarming our foe. By disarming our greatest foe. Verse 14 says this, "...that through death He might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil." Who is our ancient foe? As the song says, a mighty fortress is our God. Who is our ancient foe? It is the devil. And he came to destroy our foe by disarming him. He disarmed him. What was it that Satan had? The power of death. Do you see that? He disarmed him, the one who had the power of death. Now let's stop there for a moment and think about the devil having the power of death. We we need to make sure we understand this because we can go astray in our thinking and give to the devil a power he does not have. When it says the devil has the power of death, it does not mean the devil has the authority to kill whoever he wants to take life, give life, that as he wants, he can do that because that ultimate power and authority only belongs to the giver of law life who is God himself. We see this even in the Bible when the devil wanted to attack Job. you remember this? He had to ask permission to attack Job. And God said, you can touch him, you can touch his body, but you cannot take his life. Satan did not have the authority to take his life. So when it says that he is the one who has the power of death, what does it mean? It means, follow me, that he is the source of death. Where does death come from? According to the Bible, where did death begin? Death began with sin. God said to Adam and Eve, The day that you disobey me, you will die. You will bring death. The wages of sin is death, the Bible tells us. Where where did that sin come from? How did that sin happen? The deceiver, the devil was there and came into the garden. He lied to Adam and Eve about God. He caused them to turn their allegiance from God to allegiance to Him. He deceived them and they chose His lie above the truth of God and as a result, death came. That's the power of death. The source of death. That is what the devil has. He is the source of death. He brought death. But now notice what the Lord did to the devil. Look at verse 14. That through death, that's Jesus, through death He might destroy the one who has the power of death, the devil. It says here that Jesus destroyed the devil. Now let's stop there for a moment. How many of you are here thinking, well, if He's destroyed... He doesn't know it yet. (laughs) If he's destroyed, then what in the world is going on? Because he seems to be very active. Well, let's look at that word destroy here. The word destroy here doesn't mean utterly and eternally destroyed. One day Satan will be eternally destroyed. The Bible says, mark it down, one day he will be cast into the bottom of pit, bottomless pit, and he will be tortured forever and ever away from the presence of God. That is the future of the devil. And I want to tell you, my friend, the next time devil reminds you of your past, you remind him of his future, okay? That's right. You've got one. I've got one. It's not so great but his future isn't so hot. Oh, it is hot. Think about it. It is hot. <laughs> remind him of his future. When it says here that he destroyed the power of the devil, here's what it means. Jesus rendered ineffective. He rendered ineffective the power of the devil. He disarmed the devil. How did Jesus disarm the devil? This is amazing. Through death. Through death, he disarmed the one who has the power of death. Here is the love of our brother. Our brother disarmed our greatest enemy. And how did he disarm our greatest enemy? By taking the death, taking the nails that we deserved and having them driven into his own body he disarmed the devil now think of what the lord jesus did to the devil can you imagine how the devil was was rejoicing the day jesus was crucified can you imagine what glee there was among the demons among the devil as they saw their mission accomplished, when they saw those nails being driven into the hands and feet of Jesus, they thought, victory! We've nailed Him to the cross. He will die. And they didn't understand that Jesus taking those nails was disarming the devil. He was disarming the devil. By His own death, He was defeating the power of the devil, death itself. (laughs) What a brother we have. Who not only took our place, but in taking our place, took our spikes and disarmed the devil of his power. He did it through death. He delivered... His family. In disarming the foe, he he delivered his family. Look at verse 15. What's the result of this disarming of our foe? Verse 15. He delivered all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. He delivered those who had lived... In lifelong slavery. What was the lifelong slavery? The fear of death. Now, it means here, death itself. Death itself. He delivered those who all their lives long could never really live, really never have life, because... They would have to face death. The great unknown. The great terror. And how can you really live? How can you really be a free man or a free woman if you know you're just a heartbeat from the abyss, the great unknown, the darkness? How can you really be free if you don't know what's to come? And Jesus, by his death, he disarmed our foe and he dispels us of fear. What's dispelled? Well, by his death, he dispels us of the fear of death. We don't have to be afraid of death anymore because our Savior has done what? Look back in the early verses. He has tasted death for every man. He's tasted death for every person. We don't have to fear death because death has been conquered. Jesus overcame the devil, disarmed the devil by his death. He took the assault of the enemy. He conquered the power of death by death. And when he was buried, he went into the grave then three days he came forward as the what? conqueror of death. And now the Lord Jesus Christ, the one who died and conquered the power of death in Satan, and has conquered the grave, now wears on his belt the keys of death. He has the keys of the grave on his belt. And guess what? When your older brother has the keys of death and the grave on his belt, you don't have to fear them anymore. He wears them on his belt because he has conquered the grave. And who did he do it for? His people. He did it for us. He died our death. Defeated our foe. He destroyed our tomb. Did it all for us. He is a brother like no other. Here's the main thing that the writer is saying, and it's also part of the notes for our children. Here's the main idea. By His death, Jesus defeated the devil and delivered God's children from the slavery of fear. By His death, Jesus defeated the devil and delivered God's children from the slavery of fear. Now let me stop here just for a moment. We do not have to fear death. But sometimes, as Christians, yes, believers in Jesus, we fear dying. We fear dying. The Bible says that dying, that process of dying is the final enemy. It is not an easy thing to die. It can be a very difficult, very, very difficult thing to die. But so what is the Lord saying here? He's saying not that He has delivered us, meaning we'll never fear the process of dying. We might. It's not easy. Even for us who believe in the Lord... <laughs> Like I heard one man say one time, he said, it's not the being dead, it's the getting dead that's the hard part. (laughs) It's not the being dead, because to be dead is to be absent from this body and to be present with the Lord. It's the getting dead. It's the process of dying that can be difficult. But how do we face that? Let me tell you something, my friend. There's a promise tucked away back in the Old Testament law of Moses. Here's what God promised. As your days are, so, sh- so shall your strength be. As your days are, so shall your strength be. You know what that means? You don't have dying grace until you are dying. When you need the grace to die... God will give you the grace to die. What we need right now is the grace to live. When when we need the dying grace, the Lord will give it. But what we need right now is living grace. And where do we find that grace? Whether it's the living grace or on that day the dying grace. Where do you find grace, my friend? You find it in His face. You find grace... In the face of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's looking to Him that you find His help. You find His strength. Oh, you'll never find help and strength by looking in a mirror. Quite frankly, I'm becoming more and more discouraged as I look in the mirror as the days go by. And I don't find much help from the rascal I'm looking at in the mirror. But when I look at the face of the Lord Jesus Christ, I find living grace. And I trust when the day comes, dying grace in Jesus. In His birth and death, our brother rescues us. He rescues us. But now notice this quickly, just for a moment. What's Jesus doing now? After His resurrection and His ascension back to heaven, what's Jesus doing now? What's He been doing for the last 2,000 years? He represented us while He was here on earth identified with us, now what's He doing? Well, He is representing us in heaven. He is representing us. He rescues us and He represents us. Look at verse 16. It says, He represents us, not the angels. For it's not the angels that He helps, but He helps the offspring of Abraham. Now the writer here is writing to the Hebrews. Jewish believers in Jesus. And so he he cites here Abraham and those who are the descendants of Abraham, the Jewish people. But also this applies not just to the physical offspring of Abraham, but the spiritual offspring of Abraham. You see, the Bible says the people who are the true descendants of Abraham are not those who are physically descended from him, but they have the same faith as Abraham. Abraham believed God and it was counted to him for righteousness. you remember that? The true sons and daughters of Abraham are those who share Abraham's faith. And that's who the Lord represents, not the angels. He represents those who are God's children. Now, here's the question. How does he represent us? How does he represent us? He represents us, first of all, as our priest. As our priest. Now you're going to see in verse 17 here, there's a title used for Jesus for the first time in the book of Hebrews, but it's going to be used again and again and again as we make this journey. What is Jesus called? He is called our high priest. Verse 17, Therefore... He had to be made like His brothers. Not should be, could be. He had to be made like His brothers. He had to identify with us in flesh and blood. Why? So that in every respect, He might be a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God. Now, He mentions here the high priest. Every single Jewish person, immediately knew what he was talking about. The high priest. Who was the high priest? What was was the role of the high priest? The high priest under the old covenant represented the people of Israel. The high priest was a direct descendant of Aaron, the first high priest, the brother of Moses. And the high priest represented the people of Israel to God. Even in the garments that he wore, we're told that the high priest had clasps for his robe on his shoulders. And on those clasps were engraved the names of the tribes of Israel, the twelve tribes. The priest, high priest had a breastplate. On his chest. The breastplate had 12 precious jewels. Each one of those jewels had one of the names of the tribes of Israel inscribed on it. So get the picture. Here is the man, the high priest, who represents the people of Israel. He bears their names on his shoulder. He has their names over his heart. And he is the one who offers the great sacrifice for them. He is the one who is going to represent them, and he is the one who is going to be also the one who sacrifices for them. Now, do you see the picture of Jesus? Why is he called the high priest? Why is Jesus called the great high priest? Because He was bearing on His shoulders the responsibility for all the family of God. He was bearing on His shoulders the responsibility to be our substitute and Savior. And He is bearing on His heart all of the names of the people of God. They're all on His chest, on His heart. God's people are on our brother's shoulders. God's people are on our brother's heart. And I hope that you can thank God your name's inscribed there, right? Right. He is our priest. But also, he represents us. Get ready. Big word. Big word alert. He's our propitiation. Our propitiation. Look at verse number 17. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. Propitiation. That's a big word with a meaning that you've got to know because it is precious. The word propitiation here means... The atoning sacrifice. The sacrifice that atones. You might want to put it in your margin there. The atoning sacrifice. It has this idea, listen carefully. Propitiation has this idea where justice has been carried out, guilt has been paid, debt has been paid the sentence has been executed and now justice has been served. So there is no more condemnation. There is no condemnation because justice has been served. The penalty has been paid. This goes right to the heart of our justice system. You cannot be placed in double jeopardy. A person cannot be twice tried for the same crime, let alone found guilty for the same crime. When a person has had the sentence carried out, when the verdict has been read, the sentence has been carried out, the person has no more condemnation because justice has been served. This is exactly what the Bible is talking about here with Jesus. That Jesus is our propitiation. He is the one on whom justice has come. He is the one on whom the guilt has been laid. He is the one on whom the sentence has been carried out. Therefore, for those people that He represented, if justice has been served on Him... Then grace can be given to those that he represents. This is the good news. This is the gospel. Jesus is the high priest. Do you know what the high priest did in the Old Testament? One day a year, the day of atonement, the day of propitiation, they would bring two goats into the temple. The high priest would put his hands on the head of one of the goats and he would confess as a representative of the people he would confess the sins of the people on that goat. That goat would be led out of the temple, out of the city would be taken out into the Judean wilderness and released. As an image of that the sins of the people were being carried away from the presence of God into the wilderness of his forgetfulness. Now, think about Jesus. When Jesus was coming to baptize, be baptized, do you remember what John said? Behold, the Lamb of God who bears away. The sins of the world. Jesus was baptized by John. When He came out of the water, the voice of the Father said, This is My beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. And then the Bible says, Immediately He was led by the Spirit where? Out into the wilderness. Jesus is... The ram who bears away the sin. What happened to the other goat? That goat was sacrificed. Some of the blood of the goat was captured in a golden vessel. The high priest. The high priest. And he alone would take that vessel with that blood. And he would walk behind the curtain into the presence of God. Only he could go there. Only one day a year could he go in, and he went in with blood. Before him was the Ark of the Covenant. Over the Ark of the Covenant, the golden figure of angels outstretched their wings, looking downward. On the top of the covenant was a seat, a golden seat, where God, His presence, was resting with His people. Underneath that golden lid that was called the mercy seat, there were the tablets of the law. And those laws had been broken by the people of God. And the high priest would take a branch of hyssop. He would dip it in the blood and he would sprinkle the top of that mercy seat. It was called the place of propitiation. And the blood would cover the broken law. So between the presence of God and His broken law by His people's sin would be the blood that had been applied by the high priest. Now do you see the Lord Jesus? Do you see our great high priest? who offered Himself as the sacrifice. The cross became the mercy seat. The cross became the place of propitiation where justice, the justice of God, was poured out on our sins. And Jesus took that sin on Himself and endured that penalty in Himself. He offered Himself to God as the atoning sacrifice. Jesus died and he was buried. He rose again. He's ascended back to heaven. And now do you see him there, friends? He's the great high priest who still has the marks of the atonement in his body. And he presents himself every moment as our substitute. And every moment he is a reminder that Satan has been disarmed and justice has been served and his people are free. Oh, what a brother. What a brother. Unlike any other. That's the gospel, my friend. That's the gospel. And now, finally, what's he doing? Why does he identify with us? Because he not only represents us, but he's with us night and day to refresh us. Verse 18 For because he himself suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are tempted. You know what this means? It means this. Jesus understands. Let me put it a different way. Jesus gets it. Jesus gets temptation. You know why? Because of the reality of his temptation. Jesus was tempted. How many of you know it's not a sin to be tempted? It is not a sin to be tempted. It is a sin to give in to temptation and fulfill the temptation on your own desires. That's the sin. Jesus was tempted. In all points that a human being can be tempted, Jesus was tempted. He was tempted, tested, tried, tortured, betrayed. He gets it all. He was tempted. It was real. And now, because of the reality of His temptation, He gives us the results of His temptation. What is it? He is able to help those who are being tempted. Jesus understands. When you pour out your heart to your Lord about your temptation, you've got somebody on the other side who gets it. Aren't you thankful sometimes just to talk to someone who gets it? someone who's been there, someone who's walked that journey, someone who just understands what it's about, and you're so helped when you can just talk to someone who gets it. Friend, I want to tell you, in Jesus, He gets it. He understands. And you can cast your burden on Him because He understands. And He will help you in your temptation. Jesus stands for us, and thank God, He stands with us. He stands with us. He said, I'll never leave you or forsake you. I'm going to stand for you before the Lord, my Father. And while you walk this life, I'm going to stand with you. I'm going to stand with you. What a brother. Now, friends, Jesus has identified Himself with you and me. How much how what else could he do? He has completely identified himself with us. Now here's the challenge and the question. The challenge this identify yourself. <laughs> if Jesus has identified with you, then identify yourself with Jesus will you identify yourself with Jesus? Will you identify yourself with Jesus? Will you be someone who doesn't just say blessed or talk about God or maybe once in a while use the word Lord? That's all perfect. That's wonderful. But I want to challenge you, friends, in this culture in which we live, use the J word. Use the J word. Jesus. Don't let anyone wonder what God you're talking about, what Lord you're talking about, what Master you're mentioning. His name is Jesus. Will you identify yourself with Jesus? How do we identify ourselves with Jesus? Will you believe by your belief? Will you believe into Jesus? Will you say, Yes, He identified Himself with me. I will believe in Him. I believe into Him. I don't just believe about Him. I believe on Him. I will follow Him. I believe in Jesus. The Bible says, if you believe into the Lord Jesus Christ, you shall be saved. That's the literal translation. Believe into the Lord Jesus Christ. Not just believe about Him, the demons believe about Him. Believe into Him with all your heart and you will be born again. Will you identify with Him through your baptism? There may be some. I have no doubt here this morning. You do believe in Jesus. Maybe you went through a time of childhood childhood. Uh, journey, maybe through a teenage journey, when you weren't sure, you don't know exactly about when faith came to you, but you know that faith has come to you, that God has helped you to believe, and you know that your faith now and trust is in Jesus, I want to challenge you, my friend, identify yourself with Jesus by following Him in baptism, His death and burial and resurrection. And I want you to know, it would be my great privilege as it is, has been with hundreds of others, to see you be one who would say, I will identify myself with Jesus by baptism. And then I want to ask you, will you identify yourself with Jesus by your behavior? By your behavior. Someone has well said this, listen carefully. I'd rather see a sermon then hear one any day. <laughs> little song we used to teach children in children's church when I was a, in youth ministry. It was this. Do you know, O oh Christian, you're a sermon in shoes? A sermon in shoes? Will you, by your behavior, identify yourself with Jesus? Are you willing to be different? Jesus is different. Are you willing to walk against the grain of culture? Jesus did. Are you willing to not be popular in some of the things that you hold dear and value? Jesus did. Are you willing to love those that hate you? Jesus did. Are you willing to forgive those who have deeply hurt you? Jesus did. Are you willing to even say to your greatest enemies, and of your greatest enemies, are you willing to pray, Father, forgive them? They don't know what they're doing. Jesus did. He's our brother, and he's shown us the way. And he will help us. Amen?